The Secret Church podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For the Secret Church Aid study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC8. This is Secret Church 8, Episode 9. What I want to do, there's 18 conclusions here, and we're going to look at them through those five threads of the gospel. How do, how do we understand the possessions? Thinking about the character of God, sinfulness of man, sufficiency of Christ, necessity of faith, and urgency of eternity that we talked about earlier. And I, I know any attempt to summarize this kind of thing is in the end going to be insufficient. But I hope this, this gives an accurate picture of what we've just seen. Character of God. There's a few here. I love what Billy Graham said. He said, tell me what you think about money and I can tell you what you think about God. Character of God. First conclusion, God is the sovereign owner of all things, and we are his stewards. That, that we've seen very clearly, Old Testament, New Testament alike. Everything we have belongs to him. We own nothing. We are stewards. We are, we are money managers, so to speak. Now, think about, particularly those, the stories that we heard from Christ, when, when it talked about a master entrusting things to his servants and leaving, there's a few different stories like that. And they show us a picture of God's ownership. In those stories, the owner, he has authority. The owner has authority. He has the right to do with it whatever he pleases. God has the right to do with our possessions whatever he pleases. He has expectations. In every one of those parables, the master has specific expectations for what he wants his stewards to do. He gives trust. He designates that authority to the steward to do something with it. That's grace. He's strict in the sense that he's serious about what the steward does with that. And the owner disciplines the steward for poor stewardship. He's strict. He's generous. The master promises reward and blessing to his stewards. He is absent in every one of those parables. The owner leaves for a season. Now, that's obviously not to say that God is, is absent from us, but it it is to say that there is delayed accountability in this picture because the owner will return. He will return. The master will come back. Maybe sooner, maybe later, maybe any time, maybe least, when least expected. But that's the picture of the owner that we have, the picture of the steward, our stewardship. We are accountable. And in all of those stories, the steward gives an account to the owner for what they've done. Ladies and gentlemen, it does not matter how many people will have called us great or not, whether or not anything was named after us. If 10,000 people were at our funeral or one person was at our funeral, it doesn't matter what the newspaper book, newspapers or the history books will say about us. What matters is what our owner will say about us on that day. We are accountable to him. We must be faithful with what we've been entrusted we must be focused. The steward is concerned with serving the master responsibly. We must be fearful. In a healthy way, these servants, stewards, know that their master is just. And they fear dishonoring him. Fear dishonoring God with your possessions. We must work. Stewards work hard. They aren't lazy. We must be wise. They're managing another's assets. That's the whole picture in Luke 16. Be wise with how you use the resources that have been entrusted to you. Don't sit back and do nothing. And finally, we must be ready because the master could return at any point. The steward wakes up in the morning and says, this could be the day every single morning. That's the picture. 
God, the sovereign owner of all things, we're the steward of possessions that he's entrusted to us. That is a huge biblical theme when it comes to possessions. Second conclusion, God is the compassionate judge over all peoples, and we are his servants. We are his servants. In his compassion, God cares for the poor all over Scripture. God cares for the poor. And God defends the powerless. All over Scripture, we see the widow, the orphan, the stranger cared for specifically by God. His compassion, God cares for the poor, defends the powerless. In his justice, God dispenses property and possessions to all his people. We see this. God is, God is giving to all of his people property and possessions. Saw so it in the Old Testament. We see it echoed in the New Testament. And his justice, God is also condemning. God condemns the prosperous who disregard the poor. Old Testament, New Testament, Gospels, we see God casting down rich, powerful people who neglect the poor. God casts down rich, powerful people who neglect the poor. He's the compassionate judge over all peoples. We are his servants. As his servants, our goal is not luxury in this world. That's never the goal. Never. If the goal of our lives is luxury in this world, then we are not aligned with Scripture anymore. Our goal is love for God. We want to love Him far more than we want luxury in this world. We're His servants. We're the servants of a compassionate judge. Third conclusion. Material possessions are a good gift from God to His people for His purpose. This is so huge. As much as talking about, and Scripture talks about, the danger of wealth and riches, we need to see that God gives good things for us to enjoy. Possessions are intended by God to be savored. Genesis 1, they're good. 1 Timothy 6, God gives good things for us to enjoy. Riches are a reward in some Proverbs. So it's not bad to enjoy things. It's not bad to enjoy things. This is really important. Righteousness and riches can coexist, at least for a time. It's rare, but there's examples of this. Job, righteousness and riches, before everything happened, righteousness and riches were together. Proverbs 31, the, the, the woman of noble character, righteousness and riches. She cares for the poor. She has riches, wealth. There, it can happen. On a whole, this is important. Extravagance is an exception, not the norm. There are times when it is appropriate to use possessions extravagantly. There are celebrations in the Old Testament. There's the anointing of Jesus before he goes to the cross. There's, there are exceptions, but they're there. And so it's not bad to, to use possessions extravagantly as an exception, but they're not the norm. So that's, that's where possessions are, God, by God, are intended by God to be savored. At the same time, possessions are intended by God to be shared. They're a gift from God to his people for his purpose. His purpose. They're intended to be shared with the needy. That's all over Scripture. And, be, and they're intended to be shared among the nations. That's all over Scripture. So, rich um, possessions given to God's people for his purpose. And they're a good gift. Possessions are a good thing. Next, promises of prosperity. And this is the final one as it relates to the, the character of God. Promises of prosperity in the Old Testament must be understood in the context of covenant. Must be understood in the context of covenant. Now, we talked about this a lot, but I just want to summarize, reiterate this, now that we've got the whole picture. In the Old Testament, obedience 
to God leads some, not all, but some to acquire possessions on earth. We saw that in the patriarchs. We saw it in Deuteronomy. God promises material blessings for obedience. He promises material blessings for hard work. He says that. But remember the context. God gave possessions, at least in part. This wasn't the only reason, but in a large part, to build a place that displayed his glory among the nations. To lead them to a place, first of all, to a promised land. And then once they got there, to build a place to erect a temple. David and Solomon were enormously wealthy. And in some part, it was for the purpose of the construction, for David future construction, Solomon present construction, operation of a temple. And this is where Blomberg comes in. This is, this is huge. Who wrote that biblical theology of possessions. At the end of his, this is just to put some credibility out there. It's not just me saying this. The New Testament carried forward the major principles of the Old Testament and intertestamental Judaism with one conspicuous omission. Never in the New Testament was material wealth promised as a guaranteed reward for either spiritual obedience or simple hard work. Material reward for piety never reappears in Jesus' teaching and is explicitly contradicted without, throughout. There's a, we've got to see what God is doing in the Old Testament in the context of the Old Testament. Because in the New Testament, obedience to God leads some to abandon possessions on earth. Jesus says things like, go sell your possessions and give to the poor. Sell your possessions, Luke 12. Barnabas is abandoning, selling possessions in fields. In the New Testament, God gives, gives possessions to build a people who take his glory to the nations. He never tells the New Testament church to build a place. He says, build a people who take his glory to the nations. Promises of prosperity in the Old Testament must be understood in the context of covenant. All right, that's four conclusions. Possessions in the character of God. Now, possessions in the sinfulness of man. In the hands of sinful people, wealth is dangerous. Now, here's the deal. I, I hope we've seen this, but for the most part, things, possessions, wealth, morally neutral. Wealth is morally neutral. Possessions, morally neutral. They're not good or bad in and of themselves. You can use money to buy a slave or to bribe a judge. You can use money to fund terrorism. Or you can use that same money to buy a gift or to pay a salary or to fund missions. So, it's not, it's not wealth. It's the hands of those who are holding the wealth. And in the hands of sinful people, wealth is dangerous. If people are good, then wealth will be used for good purposes. If people are evil, then wealth will be used for evil purposes. And what we saw about the sinful ma- sinfulness of man, we are more, more prone toward what? Evil than good. Which means it makes sense for us to see these warnings about wealth all over the place. It's dangerous in our hands. We've got Christians in America just don't believe God in this one. We think wealth is a blessing. We need to realize that wealth can be a barrier. Wealth can be a barrier to the kingdom of God. That's huge. Wealth in a sinful world. And sinful hands leads to injustice. We see this all over. We see it in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Wealth in the sinful world leads to injustice. We forget the poor. Riches in, in the hands of fallen sinful men oftentimes cause us to forsake the poor and to forget the poor. Wealth in a sinful world leads to immorality. We forget the truth. 
exchange Romans 1, the truth of God for a lie, and we begin to worship and serve created things. We created worship stuff instead of our creator, which leads to idolatry. We forget our God. We fill our lives with stuff, and we forget God. I want you to feel the weight of this next sentence, because we've seen it all over Scripture. Wealth in a sinful world makes it difficult for someone who is rich to even be a Christian. The prophets warned about this. Jesus said it in Mark 10. James reiterated it in James 2. And Paul confirmed it in 1 Timothy 6. We cannot ignore the repeated warnings here of the eternally dangerous effects of possessions. In the hands of sinful people, wealth is dangerous. In the lives of sinful people, greed is deadly. Greed is deadly. Desire for more and more possessions, bigger and better, Greed is diverse. We see both of these in Scripture. Covetousness, which is lusting after we don't have, after what we don't have. I want this, I want this, I want this. Next gadget, next thing, next whatever it is. Or possessiveness, hoarding what we do have. Both manifestations of greed. Diverse and greed is devastating. Scripture teaches one who lusts is an adulterer. One who lies is a murderer. One who is greedy is an idolater. This is serious stuff. Greed is diverse, greed is devastating, and greed is damning. The very desire for riches plunges your soul into destruction, 1 Timothy 6 says. In the lives of sinful people, greed is deadly. Next truth, and this is where, again, we've got to keep the balance here. Materialism and asceticism. Asceticism, A-S-C-E-T. I C I S M. You're welcome. A S C E T I C I S M. Figure asceticism in 1149. I can help out a little bit there. Are both materialism and asceticism are both sinful perversions of God's design for possessions. Here's the deal. Martin Luther said, humanity always makes the error. We fall off the horse on one side and we get back up on the horse and we jump to the other side. And and so we. We see both of these as potential dangers that we have to avoid being going into either one of them. Basically, asceticism. Oh, it's on the next. Yeah, it's right there. There you go. Yeah. Asceticism sees money and possessions as sinful. Ascetics say money's evil. Example of this in church history, St. Francis of Assisi. He taught that money should be shunned like the devil himself. Money, possessions, they're evil. And so... The way to be holy is to get rid of all possessions. And so asceticism equates piety with poverty. Holiness is poverty. But the problem is it doesn't square with Scripture. God gives good things for our enjoyment. 1 Timothy 4, 3 and 5, 3 through 5 is the death knell of asceticism. Everything God created is good. And the danger is, in asceticism, self-denial becomes, actually becomes self-advancement. You want to advance your status before Christ, and so you deny yourself possessions. And just as it's sinful to be proud of your possessions, it's equally sinful to be proud of your poverty. Extreme simplicity becomes an excessive standard. And poverty becomes the standard by which you are accepted by God and approved by man. And this is the whole point of the gospel. And when you look at Jesus, you realize Jesus was simple, but he was not an ascetic. He hung out with gluttons and drunkards. He, he didn't just, he obviously did not get drunk. He, he did not just drink wine. He turned water into wine. He juiced up the party. 
He was simple, but not an ascetic. Materialism sees money and possessions as all-satisfying. All-satisfying. Materialism takes that which is good and makes it ultimate. It's greed that exalts things. God created us to love people and use things. Materialism loves things and uses people. That is our culture. And the effects of materialism are many. Materialism blinds us to our spiritual poverty. Everything looks like things are well when we have our stuff and we're blind to our need. Richard Baxter, Puritan pastor, said, when men prosper in the world, their minds are lifted up their estates and they can hardly believe that they are so ill while they feel themselves so well. That scares me. All I've known my whole life is materialism. And it's blinding. So what am I blind to? Materialism brings us worry and anxiety. If only I could get a raise, if only I could get a better job, if only I could get a nicer car, a nicer house, if I could get the boat, then I'd be happy. And you're always looking for something new, something more. That's anxiety, worry. Materialism leads us to endless futility. We're like drug addicts. We think that the next fix in house or car or possession is going to solve it for us. Materialism lures us into self-sufficiency. Why do you need God when you've got all the bases covered yourselves? Materialism traps us in self-centeredness. We begin to think we have a right to stuff. We deserve it. We've earned it. Pride and elitism begin to come in. And materialism distracts us from our purpose. Good things. A TV. Is a TV bad? Not necessarily. I have one for the record. But when you have a TV, that's not all. You either have to hook up an antenna or you subscribe to some kind of cable. And then you buy the DVD player so you can start renting movies. Then you need surround sound to hear the effects of the movie. Then your neighbor gets a bigger TV, so you need to upgrade yours. And now it's not just about money. It's time and energy and attention that you spend either watching immorality or even if it's good, You're taking away time from spent with family or in prayer or in the Word or hosting neighbors. And the cost of TV is far deeper than that initial price, is it not? It's distracting. You get a boat. You pay the money, but then you justify the cost of the boat by saying, well, I need to go out on the weekends and use the boat. So you leave church behind regularly. I can't be a small group leader. I can't be volunteering because I'm not here every weekend. And the cost is great, greater than we... Ralph Winter said, obedience to the Great Commission has been more consistently poisoned by affluence than by anything else. Materialism distracts us from our purpose and deceives us in our churches. Can a materialistic world be won to Christ by a materialistic church? I don't think so. I don't think so because if we're a materialistic church, then we will show the world that stuff is better than our God and they will not see his supremacy in us. And second, we'll keep all of our resources pent up in more stuff and fail to give them toward the advancement of the Great Commission to the ends of the earth. Materialism ultimately keeps us from the kingdom. 
keeps us from the kingdom. So we've got to be careful. The key to overcome materialism is seeing that Christ is all satisfying. Seeing that Christ is all satisfying. So that's the sinfulness of man. Now, possessions and the sufficiency of Christ. This first one comes almost directly from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 because it was so significant for understanding this whole picture. The incarnation of Christ is the foundation for generosity in the church. Incarnation of Christ is the foundation for generosity in the church. We see his poverty in the world. He became poor. He gives up his rights. He gives up his resources. We are his people in the world. So we give up our rights. We give others our resources. That's the foundation for our generosity is the incarnation of Christ. Second, under the sufficiency of Christ here, when Jesus saves us spiritually, he transforms us materially. After Pentecost, first believers, you see radical community and generosity. That's the work of Christ. He covers our sin. Jesus covers our sin. All the effects of sin that we've talked about, he covers them, and he changes our lives from the inside out, which means, follow this here, we do not live and give sacrificially because we are in debt to Christ. Follow me here. I'm going to take this one step further. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, you do not owe Jesus anything. We owe Jesus nothing. You know why? Because as soon as we try to pay Jesus back for all he's done for us, then we undercut the very foundation by which we've been saved, grace. It's grace because it can't be paid back. And it's not been asked to be paid back. Jesus has not brokered some deal where he said, I'll give this all of you, all for you. Now, what will you give for me? That's not the picture. And the reality is, even that would still miss the point too, because it would imply that we now have something to give, but everything we give is something that has been given to us. It's not that Jesus did this for us in the past, and now we're going to give to him to repay him. The reality is, Jesus did this for us in the past, and he's doing this for us in the present too, and in the future. And every good thing we have to give comes from him. So we do not live and give sacrificially because we're in debt to Christ. We live and give sacrificially because we're indwelt by Christ. This is the beauty. We're not trying to pay Jesus a debt in salvation. Instead, everything we're doing is his work in us. It's his grace in us, his life overflowing through us. He's indwelling us. And our possessions are now being used by Christ in us for his glory in the world. We interfere with that in our sin. But this, this is the picture, and it's why we are not ultimately motivated by guilt. We are always motivated by grace. That's what motivates us to obey God, grace. And so we needed the sufficiency of Christ on the cross to cover our sin, but we need the sufficiency of Christ today to free us from our lust for possessions and to free us to run after Christ is all satisfying and to use the resources he's given us for his glory in the world. That leads us to the necessity of faith as it relates to possessions, this is conclusion number 10. Faith in Christ involves surrender of all one's possessions to Christ. Renounce everything you have, Luke fourteen thirty three. For some of us, this means selling every possession we have to advance his kingdom. That's a possibility for any of us. For all of us, though, this means using every possession we have to advance his kingdom. For all of us, that's what that means. Which means he is Lord over every decision we make. Jesus is Lord over every decision we make. And brothers and sisters, Jesus is Lord over every dollar we spend. Every dollar we spend is Jesus to determine what we do with it. 
Next conclusion, faith in Christ results in generosity toward people. I love how this works. Think about it. Faith in Christ reconciles us to God, right? It's the essence of the gospel. We no longer live for earthly treasure. We love our eternal treasure. God is our treasure. That frees us from the constant pursuit of stuff in this world, which means faith in Christ now reconciles us to one another. Because we're not living anymore for selfish gain. We're free of that, free to live with selfless generosity. Our reconciliation to God by faith leads to reconciliation with others because we're not seeking after our own gain anymore. Next conclusion, number 12. No matter what they claim, those who neglect the poor are not the people of God. That is all over Scripture. The fruit of faith is concern for the poor. If we're not concerned for the poor, there's a problem with our faith. No matter what we sing or say at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, rich people who neglect the poor are not the people of God. It's Isaiah 1, Isaiah 58, Mark 12, Matthew 25, James 2, 1, 1 John 3. So to those who are not caring for the poor, the Bible calls us to repent of our sin and run to our Savior. The answer is not to go out and try to do better next time. The answer is to say, where is there a belief issue here? Where is my heart missing it? Christ changed me, produced this in me. And at that point, we need to hear his word humbly and obey his word quickly. Listen to it and do it. No matter what they claim, those who neglect the poor are not the people of God. Next, God desires Christians to live simply and give sacrificially. Live simply, give sacrificially. Hold on to that because we're going to come back to it later in applications. Living simply, we stress moderation. By that I mean we saw how extreme riches and extreme poverty, both of them were undesirable. We stress moderation. So how do we stress moderation in an extremely wealthy culture? We limit consumption. Contentment. Godliness with contentment. We don't pursue after all this more and more and more stuff. We say, I'm free to live simply in contentment, stress moderation, limit my consumption, and then give sacrificially. In the New Testament, we see examples where we might share our possessions, we share our possessions, we sell our possessions, and we sacrifice our possessions. We share, we sell, and we sacrifice. We see all three of those in Scripture, particularly in the New Testament. We live simply, give sacrificially. That's God's desire for our lives. Is that how our lives would be described right now? That's the question. Are we living simply and giving sacrificially? Last conclusion on the necessity of faith. God desires the church to experience visible unity through voluntary generosity. This is what we saw in the New Testament church. Visible unity through voluntary generosity. Visible unity... I love this. We show the glory of Christ to our community by caring for the poor in the local church. Galatians 6, Acts 2, Acts 4. When they cared for one another, it was evident to the world around them that the gospel was alive. And so we have a responsibility to care for the poor, particularly in our local community of faith, to care for those who are in need. And we show the glory of Christ in our community by caring for one another extravagantly. Second part of visible unity. We show the glory of Christ to the world by caring for the poor in the global church. I want to use my words choice here. And so 
follow me for a second. It's not your notes. I want to be as blunt as I can on this one. The present economic relationships in the world, worldwide body of Christ are unbiblical and sinful. It is a violation of Scripture for us to grow richer every year while our brothers and sisters around the world have malnourished and deformed brains because they don't have food and water. We are like the rich Corinthian Christians feasting before the Lord's Supper while hungry brothers and sisters sit outside our gate. Every year we spend more than $10 billion on church buildings. Would we go on building lavishly expensive church buildings if members of our own congregations were starving? Absolutely not. Now some will object, but there's a unique responsibility we have for members in our own local congregation, and I will not deny that. But at the same time, you cannot deny that in the New Testament, a major portion of the explicit teaching we have about giving concerns local churches supporting other local churches in times of urgent need. And there are times of urgent need surrounding us today in the same way that Paul used that koinonia in Romans 15 to say to the church in Jerusalem from the churches in Macedonia, we are with you, we're together with you. Our persistent spending of resources on ourselves while neglecting our poor and starving brothers on the other side of the world is in effect saying to them, we are not with you. You are on your own. And that is sin. And so we need to run to our Savior, ask Him to change our hearts and to change the way we spend in our churches. And that, brothers and sisters, will have a huge effect on global evangelism. Because we will, the world will see the body of Christ living out the gospel is real instead of what they see now. Visible unity. God, give us visible unity with our starving brothers and sisters. Through voluntary generosity. This is the beauty. We do not give out of obligation. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, Paul had said. We do not give out of obligation. We give out of celebration. God loves a hilarious giver. Urgency of eternity. Conclusion number 15. The Christian's use of money and possessions carries eternal consequences. Eternal consequences. I love one of the things Alcorn says. A startling thing has happened among Western Christians. Many of us habitually think and act as if there were no eternity or as if we do in this present life. What we do in this present life has no eternal consequences. Here's the reality. God will judge us in eternity according to our works. Now remember what we talked about. Works as evidence, not as basis or means. According to our works, which includes our use of possessions. Works are not a necessary basis or means of our justification. Works are necessary evidence of our justification. As a result, the Christian can never say, I'm saved, so I'll just get all I want on earth, and then I'll have all I want on he in heaven. I hope we wouldn't say that. We've got to be careful not to think that. If you serve money on earth, you will not see God in heaven. That's the reality, because money was your God here. You can't have money your God here, and then God... Your worship in heaven, it doesn't work. It misses the whole point of what Scripture is taught. You can't serve both God and money. Scripture also teaches that God will reward us in eternity according to our works, which includes our use of possessions. There's, there's, and I'm talking reward here like Matthew 25. Come, you who are blessed by my Father. And the beauty is we don't have to shudder. Sometimes we shudder back from the thought of reward in heaven. As we live for God's eternal glory, we experience our eternal good. God desires our good, and so it's okay to, to seek good. That's what he said. Seek treasure. Seek treasure in heaven. Live for treasure in heaven. 
The Christian cannot say, well, as long as I make it to heaven, that's what matters most. It's like the first Corinthians three, just get in barely that. Oh God, help us. The, our entrance into heaven is not the point of the universe. The glory of God among every tribe and nation and people is the point of the universe. Next, the Christian's use of money and possession reveals eternal values. This is what we saw in Matthew 6. The world uses money to store up earthly trinkets. The value in the world is temporal satisfaction. Temporal satisfaction. The Christian, on the other hand, uses money to spend, spread everlasting treasure. The value there is eternal salvation. Which one are we going to value more? Temporal satisfaction or eternal salvation? Next, conclusion. The Christian's use of money and possessions foreshadows eternal redemption. We saw this and oh, we didn't get a chance to look at it but in Revelation 21, looking forward to the new creation, a place of spiritual reconciliation. We are with God and a place of material restoration. That's the whole point. New Jerusalem, new heaven, and new earth. And now as a new creation, we use our resources to share the gospel with lost masses. We're on a spiritual mission. That spiritual mission has social ramifications. We use our resources to show the gospel to starving multitudes. Spiritual mission with social ramifications. What we saw in Christ in the New Testament church, we do. Final conclusion, our use of money and possessions changes when we realize this world is not our home. This world is not our home. The purpose of life on earth is preparation for life in eternity. We need to remember this, brothers and sisters. Riches are fleeting. They're fleeting. They're fleeting. They're fleeting. They're fleeting. Wealth is fading. It will not last. What we need to realize is that we are pilgrims on a journey. Pilgrims only carry that which is necessary to facilitate their mission. They leave other things behind. We're citizens of another country. G. Campbell Morgan said, you're not the child of today. You're the child of tomorrow. You're of the eternities. You're the offspring of deity. Make your fortune, but store it where it will greet you in the dawning of the new morning. If you make your fortune on the earth, poor, sorry, silly soul, you have made a fortune and stored it in a place where you cannot hold it. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.